Hello, and welcome to the fourth installment of Leaders in Law's new virtual discussion series. Today, we are joined by Tara Setmeyer, a CNN political contributor and the host of political podcast, Honestly Speaking. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Leaders in Law's virtual discussion series. Today, we are fortunate enough to be joined by Tara Setmeyer. Tara, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So you work in the media, and now from both sides of the aisle, people are constantly criticizing the media as biased or unfair. So what do you think is the biggest issue with the media today, and then how can that change? Well, I think there's always been a healthy tension between the media and public figures, and that's as old as history. Um, every, every president complains about media coverage uh, because the, the role of the media really is to bring information to the, to the people and to hold public officials and others accountable um, as you know, purveyors of information. Now, with the advent of social media and the pressure of 24-hour news cycles, the content and the competition to be the first to get the story, to get it out, to um, you know, get the scoop, has really heightened in a way that sometimes the quality of the journalism or the agenda um, gets compromised. Some, should, some people say, well, you know, there should be no agenda when it comes to being a reporter, and that's true. The only agenda should be getting the facts out, getting the truth to the, to the people, to the masses, so that they can make the informed decisions they need to hold their leaders accountable. Unfortunately, the reality of things is that everyone now can be a citizen journalist with the internet and with YouTube and social media that it becomes, they, they, they almost, um, they intertwine in a way that is good on one end because now you have lots of people who are involved and want to get information out or share their opinions. But then the downside becomes, yes, but is it verified? You know, what happens to someone if it's just their opinion and it's based on nothing, they don't have any sources, they can just make it up. So there are a lot of different facets to this that um, each warrant examination. But I think the main problem we have right now is that you we're so divided as a country that even no one people people can't even agree on whether the sun rises in the east and sets in the west and you have people who are in the news and full-on news channels that would sit there and actually excuse science and and dispute it and say well no 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 the sun doesn't rise in the east who said that those are these elitist experts what do they know i believe that the sun rises in the west and who are you to tell me that i can't have that opinion that's what i believe this is a problem especially now in the environment we're in where we're in a global pandemic we're in a national health crisis where expertise and facts and knowledge and information for people who are scared and don't know what's going on really, really needs to be the priority. And having such a distrust in the media from, and on both sides, this happens, you know, we're seeing it a little bit more on one side than the other in mainstream mainstream media now. Um, You know, the Fox News is in the kind of the right wing side of things, but you know, there, there were agendas on the left side of things too. Many years, conservatives complained that there wasn't enough representation, which has kind of created the Fox News and, and talk radio. Um, and, you know, they, these are, these are, it's troubling to me, even though I come from a point of view that I'm not a reporter. Um, so it's my job to have an opinion. It's my job to come from a point of view and analyze things. But I think it's really important now more than ever that reporters do their job and do straight reporting 
and not really inject any personal bias into it. As difficult as that may be and as obvious as it may be to some, you have to really, really, really be cognizant of that because everyone's so hypersensitive to, quote, bias in the media. So how do you, some of our past speakers have talked about the difference between kind of opinion news and opinion news shows and factual news shows. How do you think people now can really tell the difference and how important is it that they do tell the difference between opinion based reporting and shows and factual shows? Yeah. um, Well, I think the, the greatest example of that where you have opinion news versus opinion shows versus hard news is Fox news. So, and even, even MSNBC, now I work for CNN and they, CNN would argue that, well, we don't have any necessarily opinion shows like that, that everyone's straight news. But I think now you can see some anchors are taking a little bit more liberty and giving and injecting their opinions in prime time than in the past. But Fox News is the most blatant example. And even MSNBC has made some changes here too. But during the day, you see hard news, right? Let's take out Fox and Friends, that, that doesn't count. Um, you know, Dana Perino's show and um, back when Shepard Smith used to be on, he was hard news. Brett Baer, hard news. Everybody else though, once you start getting into prime time, that's all opinion. And I think the way that you can differentiate is who the types of people they're bringing on. Pay attention, are they experts or are they pundits? You know, are these people who, are they, like, let's just use coronavirus because that's what we're living through right now as an example. Are the people who are expressing these opinions, are they epidemiologists? Do they have medical degrees? Or if they do have medical degrees, are they chiropractors? Or are they, do they specialize in internal medicine or infectious disease? You know, I think the American people have common sense where they can see who's giving the information, who's analyzing it, and what's their agenda. Um, that's really how you separate it. When, when, you, when you use the example of, well, you know, um, this was all overblown and it's a democratic hoax just to get the president. And meanwhile, you have 26 million people who are unemployed. You have a million people tested positive for coronavirus, 56,000 and counting dead from this. It's clearly not a hoax. Clearly this wasn't some grand conspiracy just to get the president. Does that sound like news? No, that sounds like opinion. So I think I have confidence that most people can tell the difference between hard news reporting versus opinion. You know, Brian Williams at 11 o'clock, 11th hour on MSNBC is hard news versus Sean Hannity, who's spouting conspiracy theories and sucking up to the president. It's very clear that there are specific agendas. And um, but we need to. And those of us like myself who kind of have the leeway to be, we can, we bring hard news and facts and things to our analysis, at least good pundits do. If they're not doing that, if they're not speaking from a, a perspective of expertise or experience, then, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. But it's really, really, really the focus should be on bringing facts and figures and things to back up what you're saying, other than just spouting off an opinion like you're at the Thanksgiving table with your aunts and uncles. <laughs> which a lot of people do, unfortunately, yes. on television. <laughs> so obviously there are a lot of controversies in the media and things of that nature, but what were some of the formative experiences that you had that made you realize you wanted to work in communications and politics? And then how does someone get into a field like that or in a career like yours? 
Yeah, so um, I really had a, um, I didn't have a direct route to being in full-time political media. My intention has always been to be in politics. I enjoy being on the front lines of things. Um, I'm a natural solution-oriented person. I'm a natural fighter. You know, if I see something wrong, I'm going to do what it takes to fix it. And I've been like that since like first grade. So it was kind of, um, I guess, divine providence that I would end up in a position like this where I'm, I'm privileged to have the opportunity to speak to millions of people and have my voice be valued and influence people and people turn to me as a voice of reason. Um, and so I, I went to George Washington University in Washington, DC. And I fell in love with Washington when I went on an eighth grade leadership trip. I had an opportunity in eighth grade to go to DC on one of those, like check out Washington for five days and see how the government works types of leadership trips. And I was just fascinated. I, I looked around Washington and I looked at the history and I looked at, you know, we went to Capitol Hill and the bells and the floor of the house and the Capitol. It was all very, very um, intoxicating for me. I thought, this is, this is amazing. This is where I want to be. It's the epicenter of power and you have the ability to change lives here. And it seems a little like, that seems a little esoteric at 13 that I was even thinking that way, but um, I was an only child, I'm a little different and I, I'm just very introspective about stuff. So that, I made a decision when I was 13 that Washington DC is the place I wanna be. And um, George Washington University was the place. And so it gave me an opportunity to be fully immersed into DC politics. And I came of age in politics during the 90s so it was Bill Clinton, um, you know, impeachment, the government shutdowns, the Republicans coming in and taking Congress back after 40 years in the wilderness under a democratic rule. And so it was a really fascinating time to um, be in the middle of politics and do it at a young age. When I, oftentimes when I tell people that I've been doing this since I was 18, you know, I've been in this game for 25 years. People are like, what, 25 years? I'm like, yeah, I started as soon as I was a freshman in college. I was all in. I was, you know, vice chair of the college Republicans. I was interning on Capitol Hill. I was running around at, you know, volunteering on campaigns, all the way from mayoral races to Senate races. Like, I was all in very early. So I was able, I was really, really fortunate to have um, firsthand experience in politics on all different levels, from local politics and, and communications. And just communications always came natural to me. And GW has a really fantastic political communications program. It was one of the first in the country back then. Um, now more, more schools have that kind of offer that. So being able to have those resources and then basically living the same things that we were learning in class was really cool too, because you get to apply it. It's not just all theory and this and that. A lot of our professors were people who were actually in politics or people who were Reagan speechwriters or, you know, or internships with people who were, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a Republican, barely, because this Trump stuff is, is causing you to question that every day, but I'm a conservative first. So having the opportunity to, to be taught and mentored by folks who lived through the glory days um, that you know, we looked at was just absolutely amazing. And that really shaped my, my whole career path. And just the more I was involved, the more passionate I became about things where I saw um, how I could make a difference. So as I, so I was always, I mean, I, when I was young, I guess I was like 20. It was the first time I was ever on television and it was a public access show called Young Bloods. Um, it was live, two Democrats, two Republicans and a host. 
It was on like different PBS or public access stations across the country at 11 p.m. at night. And people could call in. Uh, you never knew quite what you were going to get. It was almost like a talk radio show, but on TV. And um, that's where I cut my teeth on in, in live television. I never had formal training. It's all kind of just um, instinct and natural talent, I guess. Uh, a little more formal training as I went on when I hosted shows and things like that. But for a long time, there was, you know, no formal training. I kind of just, I'm very myself. Um, so that seems to work. But that's where it started, a show called Young Bloods. And I'm still to this day friends with the woman who was host of that show, Genevieve Wood. She works for the Heritage Foundation. Uh, we, we do not agree on President Trump, but we're still very good friends and forever bonded over that experience um, starting off in television. So for me, it started very young and it just kind of carried over into my different positions where my communication skills were always put front and center because it was an asset. And being able to communicate messages effectively to large audiences and to different types of people is um, worth its weight in gold in, in politics. Because if you can't message it, if you have the wrong messenger, it doesn't matter how great your policy is, it doesn't matter how great a candidate is on paper, if you don't make people feel that or relate to it, it, it doesn't work. So that's kind of how it, how it worked for me. After I worked on Capitol Hill, I was a communications director for a congressman for seven years. Um, from California, Southern California. And I'm from New Jersey originally. So that was a little bit of a change culturally. They made fun of me and said that I had an accent because I, you know, certain words that I say when I'm from New Jersey. And I told them they were crazy. We don't have accents in New Jersey. Um, but it was the thrill of my life working there. Working on Capitol Hill is um, a unique experience. So you either love it or hate it. There's no in between. But I absolutely loved it. I looked forward to going to work every day for seven years. I, there was never a day where I was like, oh, this again, never, never. Um, and I'm just glad that I had that chance. And I was eventually courted and convert, con convinced to walk away from Capitol Hill to go into full-time media by Glenn Beck, of all people. Um, and I went to New York to join his new channel, The Blaze. Um, and, you know, I, within a couple of months, I actually regretted making the decision. I was bored. I missed the, the hustle and bustle of Capitol Hill. I missed having more direct impact on things. Um, when you work for a congressman, you're doing lots of stuff all the time for constituents or you know, policy and you're just in the thick of it. And I really, really missed that. Um, but uh, it, was, it was an interesting experience, not exactly the most pleasant one. Um, and, and not as glamorous as people think when you, you're, oh, you're on TV and there's a, it's not always, it, what, everything that glitters isn't gold, I'll just, I'll just say that. But it led to my opportunity with CNN, which I'm grateful for. And I've been under contract with them since 2014, way before the Donald Trump phenomenon. They hired me because I was a strong conservative voice and they needed some balance. And um, they appreciated my, um, my approach and so, and then, you know, as things went on, obviously the Trump phenomenon um, arose and that just changed my, my life in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways. And here we are. So you talked about a bit about how you worked for um, Congressman Dana Rohrabacher. Mm -hmm. When you were on Capitol Hill, we, everyone talks about nothing, nothing gets done. We, Congress is horrible. But when you were there, did you really see this political paralysis that we all hear about? Or does more get done than we really think? Yeah, I mean, so I was on the House side, 
and I prefer the House side to the Senate. No disrespect to my colleagues on the Senate side in the upper chamber. Um, I did intern on the Senate side when I was in college for um, a senator from Idaho, which was very cool. And I'm very glad I got a chance to experience the Senate. Um, but the Senate's not for everyone. The Senate, nothing gets done. I, I mean, it, that's, it's a graveyard. It's where things go to die. It is a Byzantine parliamentary rule heavy, like, you know, people are elected every six years. So there's really no sense of political urgency. Um, you know, the Senate is really, uh, everything moves at a glacial pace there. The House is very different. The People's House, um, you know, every two years people get elected. So you're, you have to make sure you're getting things done for your constituents or you're out. Um, so a lot more does get done than people realize. You know, there's constant committee hearings and um, legislation being marked up, which is when you have a piece of legislation and it goes to a subcommittee and the subcommittee of jurisdiction, and they go through it line by line, different amendments and, you know, it's kind of how the sausage is made when it comes to writing bills. And that happens all the time. That's constantly happening. And that's stuff that the average person just doesn't see. So a lot does get done. Um, all people see are the final products. And sometimes it looks like, what are these people doing? You know, they're, they're just there sitting in their offices, you know, going to get with their perks and as members of Congress and they're not doing anything. But no, there's always something to get done. And if it's not bills and passing legislation or um, it's constituent work, which is really the heart and soul of what being a member of Congress is about, is taking care of your district back home. It's not always about, um, you know, this bill or that bill. Uh, obviously, that's important that government runs that way. But there are a lot of other aspects of being in Congress that are going on constantly. A lot, there's a lot of busy bees, trust me, up there on Capitol Hill. Very rarely uh, do you have more than a day or two out of weeks and weeks at a time where you're just like, we don't have anything to do today. I mean, I can't really think of <laughs> many times where that's actually happened. There's always something going on. So a lot more gets done than people realize. If you have a good member, I mean, if you have a member that's kind of slacking, um, then I guess, you know, that's the fault of the, the constituents that keep voting them in. But, um, but there is a lot more going on all the time that people just don't realize. It's a lot to run the government. So in addition to that, you also worked with criminal justice issues, I think, when you dealt with Ignacio Ramos and Jose Comp. Compion, I don't know exactly. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you view the state of the justice system in the U.S. currently? Well, um, that case that I worked on, um, two Border Patrol agents who were unjustly prosecuted for shooting a um, illegal alien drug smuggler on the border in Texas back in 2006, uh, 2005. Uh, the trial was in 2000, the sentencing was 2006. Um, and it was an overzealous prosecution. There's a lot of detail to that story. I probably should have written a book and it's movie worthy. <laughs> but that case had a huge impact uh, on my life because number one, I had an opportunity to help save the lives of these two agents because they were sentenced to 11 and 12 years in prison. And they had no criminal prior criminal record the facts around the case for why they got prosecuted were very sketchy. Um, there was stuff, there was information that was withheld from the jury. There, you know, the drug smuggler was continuing to smuggle drugs while he was a star witness and the prosecution knew it. They didn't drop the case. It was a lot happening there. And I'm really grateful to Congressman Rohrabacher for giving me carte blanche to lead the fight on that effort. Um, I come from a law enforcement family. 
So my grandfather was captain of the town that I lived in. Um, he was captain of our town police for 40 years. My husband is um, a federal law enforcement agent um, going on 20 years. So I've always been very strong on law and order, you know, and that case, I was fully immersed in the prison, the federal prison system. I learned how that works and how it doesn't work. Um, I saw the inequities in the system. I saw the unfairness of mandatory minimum sentencing. Uh, so it really opened my eyes to the arguments that have been made that there needs to be reform when it comes to criminal, the criminal justice system at every level. You know, I worked on the federal level of things, but those issues, they apply also to state and local levels, even more so when it comes to inequity. Um, looking at the quality of representation, you know, how many people go to prison that are minorities, that are, are, you know, that are poor because they have public defenders and they plead the cases out 95% of the time because they can't be bothered to actually prosecute a case. They just force people to plea. You know, these, these people are overworked, they're overburdened and underpaid. So are they really giving the best re representation, the best defense to some, some of these people? No, oftentimes. So it really opened my eyes to the need for reforms in the system from the prison level down to, you know, other, other aspects of things where you just, it, it's, it's just really, really, really unfair. So I, I've been a supporter, I will say, I mean, as much as I don't like the president of the United States or, and as much as I don't agree with his policies, I, um, I will give them credit for their work on criminal justice reform. That was overdue. It was bipartisan and very, very good first steps, right? It was called the First Step Act for a reason because there's a lot of other parts of this because it's multifaceted. But the idea of helping prisoners um, uh, transition out of prison, um, you know, getting rid of some of the mandatory minimums, re revisiting sentencing, there, there, were a lot, there are a lot of aspects of, of that system that um, I'm glad to see are being reexamined. And the result of the Ramos and Combian case came on President Bush's final day in office. They were commuted, um, which to this, which was a two and a half year effort that I led. I often refer to myself as the Aaron Brockovich of that case. For you guys might be too young to remember that movie, but it's a Julie Roberts movie. It's very good. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's based on a true story where she gets involved in a case out in California to help this town that's being poisoned by a chemical plant there. And she leads the fight and really gets involved with the people on a, on, on a personal level to help get the result of to fight this big corporate company. And for me, I was fully engaged with the families. I got to know them very well. We're still friends to this day. Um, we talk all the time. And so um, Congressman Rohrabacher gave me the authority of his office to lead that charge. And members of Congress and others would come to me as the authority on this case and take direction from me. And there were a lot of others that moving parts of people who I'm grateful for, who helped make that possible to convince President Bush for the commutation. But um, I promised Nacho Ramos that I would see him walk out of prison a free man. And two years later, almost to the day, I did just that with his wife and his lawyer and walked him out of jail free man and reunited him with his family. So that is the proudest moment of my um, adult life in my career in politics thus far and um, will stay with me forever.
And that's wonderful. And so, I can't imagine freeing someone like that after they've been in prison for that long. It's, um, I, still get, I still get goosebumps and teary-eyed a little bit when I, when I talk about that case in detail, just because it was uh, you know, just a, pr a privilege and a blessing to be put in a position to be able to literally save a life or lives like that and um, see the result through. So it makes it all worth it. That's why I got into politics. So, so as you said, you're a conservative, but anti-Trump, like a lot of people are. Where do you see the future of the party after Trump in 2024, everything past that? And is there still a GOP for moderates to go back to after this is over? That is a question that um, many of us, many of, of us who are in the same position I'm in have had over stiff drinks and long talks of just what, like, how did we get here? What role did we play in this? You know, I have a lot of self-reflection about you know, did, was I part of this? You know, was this always there? Um, you know, it, it's been, uh, there's been a lot of self-reflection and also a lot of hand-wringing about what the hell do we do moving forward? Like, you know, is there going to be a Republican party for us to go back to? And I can say that Trumpism is not conservatism by any means. And this is an ongoing battle because conservatism has been co-opted by this Trumpism, this populist, nationalist, um, isolationist, protectionist, uh, racist, xenophobic ilk that Trump has used to foment so much fear and division and anger in this country that it's so antithetical to what actual conservatism is, represents, uh, you know, this isn't, <laughs> This isn't the Bill Buckley uh, conservatism that I grew up on. This isn't Reagan conservatism, especially not in foreign policy. Good Lord, Ronald Reagan spinning in his grave looking at how Trump interacts with Russia. Good grace, good, good grief. Um, you know, the, these, the, the principles of conservatism, you know, we, for the last couple of years, you know, the moniker has been never Trump Republicans, right? Many of us have kind of started to, to get away from that term because it's bigger than that. It's actually, we consider ourselves principled conservatism because we have stuck to our principles on conservatism, which is why we oppose Donald Trump so vehemently. It's not because we have just some personal vendetta, like we're in high school and we're like, we just don't like you. So we're, it, you know, when people say you're just haters, you know, it's just hatred for the press. No, it's not, because that dismisses and diminishes the principles by which we are in disagreement with him. It's not just some petty personal squabble. We believe that he represents an existential threat to our constitution, our institutions, and the principles of conservatism that we all used to share. What happened to that? We're not the ones who changed, right? Even though people like me, we're the ones that they call apostates. They say that, oh, you know, we're, I'm a left-wing liberal now, apparently. I, I, I don't know what makes me a liberal in any way other than the fact that I point out Donald Trump's not a conservative and antithetical to everything that we as conservatives believe from fiscal responsibility to morality, family values, um, you know, foreign policy, America first. That's, that's not a conservative policy. That's isolationism, you know, like, what are we doing? Protectionism, trade, free trade, what happened to that? You know, I could go down the laundry list of things that Donald Trump says and does um, that are so against what traditional Republicans believe and specifically conservatives. So we, we are very concerned that if Donald Trump gets elected again, that that is the absolute death of the Republican Party. There is no coming back from it. 
I think at this point, it's bad enough. There's going to be a lot of collateral damage in order for the party to reconstitute itself into something that's respectable, because it's not now. Um, who are those leaders going to be? Because so many of the people who we thought were the conservative thought leaders who would usher us through a time like this have completely sold out from the Ted Cruz's to the Marco Rubio's, you know, the Mike Lee's, the, um, you know, even Paul Ryan, who I adore and thought was the future of the party. Um, even he said he'd rather quit than be a part of this. Um, I think Paul Ryan quit at a time where he can still possibly come back if, you know, and rehab his image and be a leader again in the new Republican Party that emerges from this. Um, but, you know, so many others have just destroyed their credibility. I don't know how they come back and make conservative arguments and have anyone believe them. So it's going to be a challenge. I think there's still some opportunity to salvage what was left of the party of Lincoln which is why I'm a senior advisor for the Lincoln Project, aptly named, um, which was started by Republican consultants and former Republican consultants um, and ad makers like Rick Wilson, my friend George Conway, um, uh, Steve, uh, Steve Schmidt. These are people who um, have worked on the front lines of getting Republicans elected, presidential uh, campaigns. And I mean, George Conway, for goodness sakes, is married to Kellyanne Conway, who I've known for over 20 years who I have, who I don't recognize. I haven't spoken to her in quite some time because I'm just disgusted by who she's become. I don't know who that is. Um, but apparently it was in there, you know? It's, it's you just, it's amazing. This, this, this Trump era has really exposed a lot of people who I thought I knew, who I thought were um, good and honest people and have they just turned into awful people and dishonest people and grifters and I just, and I'm just, uh, heart sick over it because it's um, way more prevalent than I expected. But anyway, the, the Lincoln Project is one of the one of the groups that has really welcomed in the kinds of people who are looking to see like, what is life going to be like after we get this guy out of office? The priority has to be if there's any hope of any healthy Republican Party of any sort. It cannot be with Donald Trump at the at the helm of it. Um, same thing with Stand Up Republic which is an organization I sit on the board of, which was started by Evan McMullen and Mindy Finn, who ran um, in, as independents, independent conservatives during 2016, and who I actually voted for. I did not vote for Hillary Clinton or Trump in 2016 um, out of principle. That's not going to be the case this time, um, not because my principles aren't important, but I just think that the priority is Donald Trump has to go at, at all costs. So. Yes, I see that Justin Amash has, has recently announced he's exploring running for president. I like Justin. I agree with him on a lot of things. Some things I don't as a libertarian for him. But I think it's a huge mistake. He's going to draw votes away from Joe Biden, um, especially in places like Michigan, where he's from. And Trump only won Michigan by 11,000 votes. That's less than a you know NBA basketball game. Um, and I just think that it's not, this is not the time for we can fight that revolution later, right? That was the same argument that the left wing, you know, some liberals to say, you know, the Bernie Sanders, we're not voting for anyone. Listen, none of your stuff is going to even be possibly entertained if Trump wins again. So fight the revolution later, right? So Thomas Friedman said in the New York Times, I feel the same way as we're, as conservatives. Look, we'll fight the, those policy differences later. None of that matters if Donald Trump is in office again, because he's literally a threat to our constitutional institutions and our republic. And now with his 
gross mishandling of coronavirus and the politicization of this, it's literally life or death. There's now a body count that goes along with the incompetence. So we have to work hard to try to not only save the Republic, but, but you know, salvage what's left of the Republican Party, if that's even possible. But if Trump wins, it's not possible. We're, it, something new is going to have to happen. So with this next election happening, do you think right now the political system seems so void of real leadership on, on both sides of the aisle? Do you think after this election we can see a real return to real, crawl, real leaders, strong leaders, you know, John McCain, Paul Ryan, the Ted Kennedys of the world? Do you think we'll see that or no? Uh, I mean, I hope so. You know, we have to have... We have to have some optimism here that there are people out there who are capable of being strong leaders. Um, why I support Joe Biden in this election, uh, despite my political differences with him on policy, is partially because I know that he's a good and decent man. And being a good leader starts with being a good and decent person. Um, there is no hope of inspiring others to emerge who have those qualities when you, it flows from the top. I mean, we look at what's been unearthed with Donald Trump there at the top, um, and it hasn't been our best, as much as he tries to claim that, it hasn't been. Um, we've seen the worst of this country, the worst that we've seen in generations, and it flows from the top. So are there leaders like that out there? Absolutely. Just look at what's going on on a local level with our governors and mayors and the way that they're handling the coronavirus crisis in their states and localities. You're starting to see some, some real leaders emerge, um, whether it's Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of Maryland, um, putting politics aside and, and doing what he needs to do to take care of his, his state or Cuomo in New York, or Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, you're, you're seeing people, you're starting to see the, the best of people um, in a time of crisis, because that's really a good measure of how, how a leader leads is in crisis. So they're out there, but you have to create an environment that is conducive for them to want to step forward. I know there's a lot of people, especially women, who are like, we're not getting in the middle of this, because this is, this is awful. Do I want to risk my family, get things getting torn apart and all that? But then you also saw a lot of women say enough is enough and step up to the plate and record numbers of women ran in 2018 in the midterms and won. It was another year of the woman situation like we had in 1992. There's usually watershed moments that, that inspire people to say enough is enough. I, if they can do it, I can do it too and better. So I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. So I think it starts with getting Joe Biden elected and purging our um, po politics of the ilk that Donald Trump has, has injected into it, which is not going to be easy. Um, and especially when you have an entire media apparatus on the other side there uh, fomenting this, it's going to be a challenge. But I think, I think the country is um, up, for the, up for the challenge, I hope. We'll see. So this general election is obviously going to be one of the craziest and maybe the closest we've ever seen. How do you think this is going to play out in November with all these factors? It's, um, you know, I'm, I'm out of the prediction business after what happened in 2016. You know, all of the conventional wisdom has been right out the window. Um, there's nothing conventional about most of what's going on. Um, certain axioms, political axioms still, still apply, like voter turnout, enthusiasm. You know, whoever has the most enthusiasm will win. Um, which is why Trump uses fear, fear-mongering and anger 
as his political currency because he knows it's a strong motivator for people. Um, you know, in 2008, it was hope and change, right? Well, people were angry about what happened with the financial crisis, the, the Iraq and, and Afghanistan wars, they were tired of it. And Barack Obama offered a more powerful message in hope and change. So in 2016, we all know what Trump did. Uh, what happens in 2020? Will the, it is a, it is a referendum on him. Nothing else is a factor. It is a total referendum on Donald Trump. Will enough, enough people say, I've had it with this, I've had it with the chaos every day, I've had it with the sucking up to dictators, I've had it with the corruption, I've had it with the incompetence, I've had it with the absolute sociopathy of this guy. You know, do we continually want a malignant narcissist in the White House to lead, to lead us, I use that term loosely, through crisis? Because this isn't the only crisis we'll face. I mean, the world is a dangerous place. We still got China and Russia and terrorism and Iran. And I mean, there's a lot of other things going on here that we need a cogent and competent president to handle. So what happens? What, how do the American people react to this? It's tough to say. You know, we often say that a week is a lifetime in politics, which is true. Just ask the Democratic primary field what, what a difference a week can make, right? I mean, Joe Biden went from being almost dead in the water politically to being the nominee in about 10 days. So things happen very quickly in politics. From now until November, that is an eternity away. So many things can happen between now and then. Um, but most of the time, what motivates people is how it affects them personally. How does it impact me? Which is why the economy is always an, a strong underlying motivational factor for folks. Because what's happening over there, or you know, this and that, it's, it's a little, you know, it, it's, it's tangential to people. But if it affects my pockets, you know, the kitchen table issues, how does it affect my family? That is a strong motivator for people. So how coronavirus impacts certain communities, impacts families, um, you know, if your uncle died from taking hydroxychloroquine because the president said, oh, it's a miracle drug, it's going to work, you're like, uh-uh, you know, I, I don't think I can continue to vote for someone or support someone that's putting this kind of stuff out. Look at how many people died in my community, my family, or how irresponsible this has been, or, you know, we opened our business too soon, and, you know, 50 more people got sick and half of them died. Like, there are so many things that, put, that come into play when people decide to go out and vote. But usually it's how does it impact me and my family? That's always the underlying factor. So what that looks like, what those factors are on November 3rd, uh, it's tough to say. Nobody saw this coming three months ago, right? Adam Schiff was, during the impeachment hearing, um, gave an unbelievable closing argument. And in that closing argument, this is obviously pre-coronavirus, he was mentioning about how much damage, if you don't remove Trump now, how much damage could he do between now and the election? I think we've seen that, 56,000 deaths later. So that is all the time we have for today, but we just wanna thank all of our partners, America's Promise Alliance, Nancy Donahue, and the Greater Will Community Foundation for their support. Thank you to everyone who's listening and watching this. And most importantly, thank you to Tara for being with us today and sharing your time and knowledge. That's my absolute pleasure. And everyone who's eligible to vote, go and vote. It's the most important election of your lifetime. People have fought, bled, and died for our right to vote. And your vote matters. Your vote matters, especially 
in this election, whether it's state, local, or federal, make sure you not only register, but go out and vote and take five people with you. We hope you enjoyed our discussion with Tara Setmeyer. To learn more about Leaders in Lowell, please check out our website at leadersinlowell.org and our Instagram at leadersinlowellofficial. We hope to bring you many more discussions with leaders in the coming weeks, so check out our website and social media accounts for all the updated info. Again, thank you, Tara, and all of you for tuning in. We hope to see you again soon.